You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Daniel O'Brien is a Catholic student at the University of Notre Dame, currently pursuing a joint major in philosophy and theology and a supplemental major in classics with a Greek concentration. His research paper, That All Shall Agree, on David Bentley Hart's interpretation of Romans 5, 18-19, won first prize in the first-year category of the Hesburgh Library Research Award. This paper began as a project for the Program of Liberal Studies, Professor Katie Budges, Bible Tutorial. David Bentley Hart himself has complimented Daniel's article in his Substack newsletter, Leaves in the Wind. Anyone can access the article with a simple internet search under Daniel O'Brien, that all shall agree. I encourage everyone to read this excellent research paper, and I am pleased to have Daniel with us to talk us through it. Welcome, Daniel, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. Really excited to be here. Well, let's just start off. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you felt compelled to step into the whirlwind of reaction to David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a Catholic household. I was raised Catholic, um, and I I took my faith very seriously. Um, But I also have a spiritual background. Um, On my dad's side, my grandmother and my aunt are are Presbyterian, so I, I grew up going to a Presbyterian church camp in Pennsylvania, uh, which was wonderful for my faith. Um, but it was first there where um, through serious attention uh, to the scriptures, uh, I began harboring uh, what one might call hopeful universalism um, or the suspicion that uh, through the victory of Christ and, and the love of God that um, all will be saved. Um, and through through later study and, and personal reflection and prayer, um, this hopeful universalism became more and more confident, um, rooted as it is for me um, in the proclamation of, of Christ being victorious over sin and death um, and, and the eternal and unbound love that God has for us. Um, so that's essentially uh, a little bit of my background and, and, and how I came to the, the topic of, of universalism. Well, you decided to jump right into a research paper on Romans 5, 18 to 19, which turns out is one of the most contested uh, passages in this debate. And um, so I thought we would just start right there. That's what your paper's about. And for reference, here is David Bentley Hart's translation of the passage, which you quote in your article. So Romans 5, 18 to 19, as translated by David Bentley Hart. So then, just as through one transgression came condemnation for all human beings, so also through one act of righteousness came a rectification of life for all human beings. For, just as by the heedlessness of the one man the many were rendered sinners, so also by the obedience of the one the many will be rendered righteous. So what is it about this passage which makes it so central to the discussion about universal salvation in Christianity? I think one of the essential things that, that makes it so important is the rhetorical force and vigor with which 
Paul makes this parallel between the universal state of being separated from God and the coming universal restoration of people to God. Um, and I think that while there are certainly other places in, in Paul's letters where, where universalism will pop up, um, this is at a point in Romans um, wh- where Paul is reaching a conclusion of this sort of extended meditation on how humanity came into this predicament of sin through Adam and how God is rescuing us from it in Christ. Um, so I think both in, in that sort of important context within Romans, but also the rhetorical force of the, the parallelism uh, in the verse itself um, makes it perhaps uh, one of the strongest uh, verses one can cite in Paul in support of universalism. Um, and in fact, in, in David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved, um, when he gets to the scriptural portion and is, is quoting from scripture, it is the very first uh, verse that he lists. Um, and so as I, I was reading that work uh, at the time I was thinking of my research project, um, I thought, well, if uh, Dr. Hart thinks that's a good place to start, uh, I think it's a good place to start too. Um, and so that's where I started. Well, in this, in this uh, debate, let's just get some terminology here. So if, so you're bringing a universalist interpretation to this, but there are others who bring a particulist, what we call a particulist interpretation where they don't recognize that this passage uh, implies a universal salvation. They say it implies a particular salvation, but not a universal one. So why do some particularist scholars not recognize the parallelism, which seems so present and obvious in this passage? And then what problems do they run into? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think one of the things that happens in all interpretation of scripture is that we read scripture in light of other scripture and what scriptures we, we use sort of to interpret other scriptures depend uh, in part on our prior doctrinal commitments. Uh, now, it would be uh, incredible if we could say with confidence that uh, a single person can approach the scriptures without uh, any prior uh, mm-hmm. conception of what it's saying. That's uh, unfortunately in, in, in this world, not, not uh, how things go. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of people who approach this text already being convinced of a particular interpretation um, namely that uh, at the very end of things, there will be people eternally separated from God. Um, and so when they, they read this, they want to fit the verses within their schema uh, rather than taking these verses as, as being central to their, their schema, um, as in uh, some universalist interpretations. Um, but it's... I mean, if you if you look at the verse itself, the the parallelism is is very clear. It's the same phrase that Paul uses both times. Um, he he says all people or all mankind. The Greek is uh, pantas and thropus, um, which is is sort of an unqualified and very clear way of, of saying um, every single person. Um, and while most uh, interpreters of scripture agree that, that Paul sees the issue of sin as being universal, as applying to all humans in this context, in sort of the first half 
one might say, of the verse. Um, because of these prior doctrinal commitments, some people fail to see that it is the same group of people that Paul is talking about in the second half of the verse, that the same universal scope of condemnation is being reversed by God into a universal scope of reconciliation. Well, one of the things that happens is um, when you when you bring up um, verses 18 and 19 and you quote those, somebody will say, well, hold on. Verse, you got to read verse 17 because it's only people that receive receive it, receive the salvation that get it. You have to receive it. And there's this verb, uh, lambonontes, which gets heavily debated as to what that means. So let's talk a little bit about what problems do you find with the attempt to make Romans 5.17 cancel out the universalist implications of 5.18 to 19? Yeah, well, one thing I, I will often say uh, when when someone brings that objection up to me is um, I, I sort of one-up them and say, well, instead of just going back to 17, let's go back to 12 uh, and then mm-hmm. see the entire scope of what Paul is saying. Um, but before we do that, I do want to address uh, 17. So this this phrase, um, yeah, hoi lemvanontes, those uh, who are receiving, um, is not being set up in the sense of scope of who is being saved. Um, it is a, a, a sense that Paul compares, and there's a parallelism here too in this verse, and it's actually between death reigning through sin and those receiving grace reigning through Christ. Um, and so there's no suggestion here um, as, uh, as Dr. Bell says, uh, I, I quote in my paper, um, he says there's, in the universalist interpretation, there's no separation between um, all people and those who receive Christ. Because in the end, uh, in the universalist reading of Paul, um, all people receive Christ. As in you know, Philippians 2, there's this great vision uh, that, that Paul uh, writes out of, of every knee uh, whether under the earth or on the earth or above the earth, bowing, confessing with joy that Christ is Savior. Um, so my argument is essentially that this imprecise metric of, of those receiving um, is clarified um, in 18 and 19 um, to be uh, all of mankind. Um, and even, uh, you know, particular scholars who I engage with uh, in my paper uh, admit that this phrase is is more ambiguous um, here and has to be clarified by other parts of the scriptures. Um, and so in, in that sense, the, the rhetorical force of the verse um, is not that, oh, only those who... Um, you know, receive in an active sense, only those who, you know, reach out and take this gift um, sort of deal uh, will, will receive this. But rather, it's it's those who passively are receiving this gift from God that will reign um, instead of death, um, which is very interesting of Paul to say that it's not a um, parallel between death reigning and then say, like, later he talks about grace reigning. 
but rather it's those who are being filled uh, with the abundance of grace and with the gift of righteousness um, that that will reign through life through Christ. Um, and so in that sense, I do not see Paul as writing that phrase thinking, oh, here's where I'm going to put my little caveat against universalism. He's not thinking about that in this verse. He's thinking about something far beyond that. Um, and so uh, I would say that, that that verse 17 objection is more sort of a rescue mission um, in some sense of particular interpreters who recognize the um, direct rhetorical force of 18 and 19 and are sort of looking for an out um, so to speak, that, that just isn't there in this text. Well, it seems like it kind of fits in with Paul's own experience, too, in that it the uh, we could say that the reign of life and grace rained down on him when he was on his way to Damascus. You know, he didn't he didn't have to ask to receive it. It came on him in such force that it knocked him to the ground. Yeah, yeah. And, and elsewhere in Romans, he, he talks about the the mystery that is while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and this is sort of becoming a, a more popular reading of Paul um, in, in academic circles that, that focuses on the inbreaking of the reign of God uh, upon our world, that this is God's action um, coming to rescue us. Um, and that emphasis on, on God's action, um, it does not displace human agency. Um, but rather it focuses um, our way of reading Paul as seeing um, this divine rescue mission um, in a way that, that recognizes um, how it's, it's something that is a direct act of God um, beyond, in some ways, our, our expectations and understandings. And I can, Just you know, like, I get, yeah. yeah, I can empathize with people who would see it this way because sort of the Christian message is often presented, well, God has salvation for you. All you got to do is receive it. So you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I actively receive this thing? And it was actually um, my study of some Calvinist writings that convinced me that, no, actually it's the, it's the inbreaking of grace that actually accomplishes all of it. And it's the grace falling on you that enlivens you and makes everything happen. I, I didn't like the part where God only extends that grace to certain people. I didn't like that part of the Calvinist schema, but but I found some of the arguments pretty convincing that it's actually grace that's doing all the work. Yeah, and there, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly places in Paul um, that, that, that leads to that Calvinist reading. I mean, the, the Calvinist reading didn't come out of nowhere per se. Uh, but it was obviously filtered through uh, centuries of, of, of certain theological systems, particularly um, certain interpretations of, of Augustine. It's particularly um, the late Augustine. The late, yeah. Um, but there, there really are places, um, especially in Paul, where, um, and I think you might be right based on his own sort of personal um, experience, um, that there there is a, a, a action of God that... Um, that, that we are simply um, reacting to in, in a certain way. Um, and I, I would say for Paul that um, the reception of this gift uh, is important. Um, yeah, there is, and, there is real, 
that I, I said that grace does all the work. It's almost like grace gets the whole thing started, but then we do have a real response to make. It's not like we become like a hand puppet that we we're now caught up in something, but it does require our participation as well. And that's a mystery. Right. And I, I think that, that goes to, to later in Romans and in Romans nine through 11, there's this great meditation by Paul on, on how um, even through the, the hardening of, of the hearts of, of people who don't accept Christ, how, how that is something that God works through to bring about salvation. And, and particularly he talks about it within his own history, um, reacting to uh, the reality at that time that there were lots of Jewish people who weren't accepting Christ. Um, and he, he concludes that, that God consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy upon all. Um, and he has this, this great phrase um, that uh, essentially, to, to paraphrase, um, God has allowed um, the Jewish people to, to remain in, in disobedience so that he can bring the Gentiles in. Um, and, and through this act, um, all Israel will be saved. Um, so there, there's this tension, um, in some sense, in the present between um, those not receiving uh, the grace of God or resisting the grace of God. Um, but all this tension uh, is ultimately resolved in the end by God. Um, there's, there's there's no thwarting the will of God for Paul. Um, yeah, I was just going to, uh, the, the phrase yeah. that was coming to my mind was there's this strong theme of sovereignty that's running through Romans. And so, well, why aren't some people believing? Well, it's uh, it's not a part of God's plan for them to believe right now. And God is working all of this out. And so if you're the one that's believing or you're the one that's not believing, it's all part of God's plan. It's all working together. God has, God has caught us all up in disobedience that we might have mercy that he might have mercy upon all of us uh, but you can it, you can lose you can lose the thread of Paul's argument before you get to Romans 11:32 you can kind of uh, somewhere along the way you can insert a kind of uh, legalism or transactional uh, quality into Paul's reading and then it fr- it keeps you from seeing I think then what he's really talking about well, let's go on to the uh, next question I want to ask you about. In the paper, you talk about the importance of considering Romans 5, 18 to 19 within the broader idea of two separate ages, the reign of death and the reign of life. Tell us a little more about this. Yeah, so this is an idea uh, that's very important to Paul, but also it, it resounds throughout the New Testament, um, this idea that um, the age to come or the, the Messianic age um, as it might have been understood in, in, in certain parts of, of, of Judaism, um, has already come through Christ, that um, the victory has been won. Um, but at the, the same time, um, we, are, we are still living in uh, what Paul calls the present evil age uh, in Galatians, uh, where, where the victory has been won, um, but the, the effects of the victory have not totally resounded. It's it's almost like, um, you know, you'll you'll hear stories of um, wars being won and, and, and truces being signed, um, but they're still being, you know, 
remnant parts of an army still fighting or, or has not heard uh, the message, um, has not heard the, and, and even the, the phrase gospel, good news is, um, it, it's one that was also used by Roman emperors to declare their victory. You um, so it's a, it's a Yeah, it's a, it's a proclamation of victory. Um, and, and so Paul has this concept um, of this, this age that we were once totally in. Um, and he talks about this very much in this section of Romans, Romans 12, um, sorry, Romans 5, 12 through 21, um, where there's this reign of death, this reign of death, which came through sin, um, through, through disobedience, um, through the figure of Adam. Um, and this reign was total. Um, this it, it held all uh, mankind in thrall, um, but but um, God uh, did not leave us in this state. Um, instead, uh, God sent His Son uh, Christ to totally undo this entire action, and so that's why there's so many parallelisms in this section um, between death and life, um, between trespass and obedience. Um, and, and, and we, we see this sort of theology of reversal of, of the true King essentially has come back in town, uh, won the victory and is now reigning. Um, and that's why it's very interesting that in 17, he's, he's reigning through those who receive his grace. Um, in, in some sense, they, they are, they are deputies, um, of, of this, of this victory of this reign of God. Um, when I was studying the uh, New Testament and trying to understand what the kingdom of God meant, it really helped me when I realized it was the basileia, the, the reign, understood as the reign of God. And then yeah. in the ancient world, the way that power works is if you have power, you receive their power from the king. Every All the power comes from the king. And so what essentially is being, what Christ is talking about is the, the reign of God or the power of God, the reigning power of God is now present. And he's talking about how people can receive it. And so the good news of the early proclamation is that this incredible reigning power of God had scored this amazing victory over the powers of sin and death and that we were now released from this. And so it was a joyful proclamation of this victory and this good news. And that way of putting it sounds kind of foreign uh, to modern ears, but somebody like you that's familiar with the ancient Greek, the ancient world in the Greek context and the, you know, the meaning of the word euangelion and how it was used about victory in battle and reigning and kings and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of world that would, that would jump out to you much more than somebody who's not familiar with all of that. Yeah, very well said. Um, it's, it's definitely was an interpretation that when it first came to me, uh, seemed different than the way, um, a lot of, uh, things in in the Bible were explained to me, um, but at the same time, it was a it was an understanding that once I went back to the scriptures, became it, it almost started popping out at me sort mm-hmm. of everywhere, um, and it's also um, understood that way by a lot of early church fathers, um, and and some call this the the Christus Victor, Christ yes. the Victor uh, way of understanding the gospel, um, primarily. Um, using the imagery of the defeat of sin and death um, and in the, the reign of God um, replacing uh, the reign of, of sin um, and it's a it's very native to the New Testament 
Yeah, I think that was a that was a really exciting when that's one of the gratifying things about getting to do the kind of study you're 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 at the PhD you're you're going on to the PhD level but you're you're doing that in-depth language kind of study and you're studying the 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 ancient world and so to me that's the exciting part about the kind of scholarship that you're doing is once you're sort of swimming around in that world it all of this stuff you know, kind of pops out at you and you feel like, aha, I've discovered something, you know, this is really helpful. And, uh, so I'm really, I'm, I'm pleased with, uh, with what you're doing. One of my, uh, professors at Bright Divinity School was, uh, Dr. Eugene Boring. And, um, and I noticed that you referenced an article, uh, that Dr. Boring wrote called the language of universal salvation in Paul. And so what did you find of significance in uh, Dr. Boring's article? Yeah, this was an article um, that was very important uh, in writing this paper. Um, yeah, Dr. Boring uh, essentially argues that um, if, if you're reading through Paul, um, you will see that he affirms both limited salvation in a sense and universal salvation in a sense. Um, and, and, and this seems interesting to us because we're like, wait, is is Paul contradicting himself? Um, but no, um, essentially, he's using these these different images to describe different aspects of of the reality of of what has happened in Christ. Because um, there there very much is a sense for Paul that the Christ's victory becomes uniquely available to those who are faithful to him. Um, and this is all throughout Paul, you know, receiving the spirit um, and, and, and awaiting the hope of, of, of justification. Um, but there's also these um, places like I, I mentioned, obviously, Romans 5, but also um, Philippians 2 and uh, 1 Corinthians 15, um, which David Bentley Hart thinks 1 Corinthians 15 is, is, is perhaps the, the most explicit uh, laying out of Paul's uh eschatology, uh, which is basically his theology of, of the last things uh, anywhere in scriptures. And in all those places, um, you see this final state of universal reconciliation. Um, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 15, you kind of have this Pauline eschatology that, that culminates in 1528 with God being all in all. So it's like a procession towards this telos or this grand conclusion. So that what but what happens is the good news is that we don't have to wait until the final telos is recognized. We can enter into this victory right now. We can we can live in this right now in the middle of this dark world that's got all these troubles and burdens and sins that we can live this victorious life right now. That doesn't mean that somehow the victorious life won't be completely victorious at the end of the ages. I think Ephesians 2, 7, Paul talks about not just a coming age, but a coming ages which helps me to understand why early Greek readers of the New Testament would maybe look at time a little differently because they would see that word aeon or aeonios, and they would think, oh, this is talking about the ages or about something about God or something about the, the, the way God is working through the ages, and then at the end of the ages, God will be all in all, and then everybody will transcend the ages. So they, didn't, they were sort of in a different way, thinking about time in a different way than we are. Certainly, certainly, definitely. The the conception of time was, was different, and, and you bring up that the word uh, aeon, which is um, important. Um, 
it's it, it, Greek for age and very important to this two age schema uh, because right. of that. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the famous verse of, um, you know, do not be any longer conformed to the pattern of this world. We might be familiar with that um, translation, but it's what, what Paul says in Greek is do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. This aeon. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not, um, not and, cosmos, and, this aeon. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and 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 Paul in in Galatians, um, he compares the the now Jerusalem, uh, who he says who is in slavery together with her children, with the above uh, Jerusalem. So there's there's this spatial um, sort of metaphor of of the above um, being combined with the temporal metaphor of the of the now, um, and so it's really sort of this this colliding of ages um, for Paul. Um, but importantly, as you mentioned, it's this concept that the, the age to come, the age where God will be all in all is present now to those who are in Christ. Um, and so in that sense, there is some sense, a a present particularism, whereas this is not a universal reality, um, to all people now, but that does not negate the fact that for Paul, this will become a universal reality. He, in 1 Corinthians 15, has this interesting, um, almost three-tiered eschatology, we might say, um, where he says the first fruits um, of the resurrection was Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he says, at the arrival of Christ, all those who are with him. Um, And a a lot of people's sort of idea of what the New Testament talks about, that should be it, right? Right. You know, the resurrection of Christ, and then uh, those who are with him, and then that's the end. But then Paul says, and then comes the end, the telos, as you said, the goal. Right, but the but the, the, uh, but the, the the word, the English word end there is a little bit misleading because, yes. you know, you sort of get the idea that Christ comes back, then he takes his people and that's it. It's, that's the end. And, you know, it's like, like in a movie, like, okay, that's the end. But really the Greek word there is telos. And, you know, so then it's like, and then comes the. And in Greek, I think a good translation of telos is the fulfillment or the final purpose for which yeah. everything was headed towards. Then comes the then comes the telos, the final fulfillment in which God will be all in all. So this joyful proclamation that God will finally be all in all sort of gets cut off because we read it. Well, Christ comes back and he takes his own and that's the end. Yeah, because, you know, in between uh, the, the description, then comes the fulfillment and that, that beautiful verse that God will be all in all is this great sort of imagery of, of Christ, again, like a, a conquering king, he comes and defeats all of his enemies. And Paul says the last enemy to be defeated is death, um, which for, for Paul, you know, includes physical death, but is, is, is also this state of being separated from God. And so even that um, is, is subjected under the feet of Christ, is, is his imagery, it's sort of trampling. Um, it, it reminds me of the great uh, Eastern Orthodox resurrection uh, Easter hymn that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by his death. Um, and, and so there's a, this great imagery of, um, of Christ defeating all his enemies so that this great, um, this great fulfillment will happen where God is all in all. Now, in the, um, in the article you write that while this paper does not attempt to comprehensively analyze universalism throughout the entire Pauline corpus, it is nonetheless important to address some of the verses mentioned by particularists who assert that a universalist interpretation of Romans 5, 18 through 19 is incongruous with the rest of Paul's work. So, you know, um, 
the particularist folks would say, now you all don't get too, or I'm, I'm from the South. Now y'all don't get too carried away uh, by uh, Romans five eighteen to 19, because Paul has plenty of other verses, which make it really clear that uh, not everyone is going to be included in salvation. Yeah. And so, and that's, as I mentioned, some people come to this verse um, already sort of having this particular mindset. Um, and, and they'll, within Paul, um, they'll bring that mindset to other verses and interpret those in that particular way. Um, but what you'll find in Paul is um, a, a strange lack of, uh, of verses that, are, are, that even appear to be particular in, in the final sense. Um, there occasionally, uh, he, he talks about people um, who are perishing um, in, in the present sense, um, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, one eighteen, um, the word of cross is folly to those perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, um, describing once again this, this sort of current reality at the, the juncture of the ages, whereas where where, where the, the new age is coming. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of destruction language that you can find. And David Bentley Hart, you know, he doesn't shy away from that. He says, yeah, I mean, you find a lot of destruction language. The question then is, what does the destruction, what, what's the, is that an ultimate state or is that approximate state headed towards a final restoration? Yeah, and it's very interesting that Paul uses um, the word dis- destruction um, uh, which essentially the the, the most strong uh, or, or seemingly most strong particularist uh, verse in Paul is Second Thessalonians one nine um, when when he talks about um, those who those who aren't faithful to Christ um, will will, su- will pay the penalty of um, a Ionian a you know of the age uh, mm-hmm. destruction um, from the face of the Lord in, in the the coming of his might or the glory of his might, um, which in, in my view is, is talking about the, at the arrival of Christ, uh, the Lord for Paul um, and, and the sort of the, the, the destruction and, and the penalty that will have to be paid there. But uh, regardless, uh, the same phrase destruction is used in first Corinthians five, five um, explicitly in a redemptive context. So for Paul, uh, even within his writings, we find this, being used in a redemptive context. Um, he says, uh, you are to deliver this man, uh, this, this person sending um, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Um, so there, the, this, this concept of, uh, of destruction being applied because of sin um, is a step towards salvation um, uh, in the day of the Lord. Um, let me tell you. Let me tell you an ironic story. When I uh, I did a doctorate ministry paper in the mid '90s, and I was studying the different ideas, ways people talked about ultimate destinies, and the the folks that were, were trying to give an argument for uh, eternal conscious torment made the note that in the New Testament, something can be in a state of destruction, apolumai. Something can be in a state of destruction yet still be existing. So they said, like in Luke 15. The lost sheep is in a state of apoluma, is in a state of destruction, but still, it's not still existing. The lost coin is in a state of destruction, but it's still existing. And the lost son is in a state of apoluma and is even said to be dead, but somehow still existing. So what they said was, 
being in a state of destruction can continue indefinitely. And so I thought, well, that's interesting because if a destruction, you can be, you can be destroyed, but not be entirely gone. Well, and in Luke 15, there is restoration from destruction, even from death. So I thought it was interesting that an argument from eternal conscious torment actually helped me resolve the annihilationist position that I was in, realizing that, oh, okay, there can be a restoration on the other side of Apollumi or on the other side of restoration. So I just thought that was interesting how that, that, that kind of said to me that it's important, don't worry about studying positions that you don't agree with. Because sometimes it's in the very study of other, like I don't agree with some things about Calvinism, but it was in studying Calvinism that I thought, well, you know, you got a point there. You know, you never can tell when you're going to get a, where you, where you might find something that you agree with, even with somebody who you don't agree with their overall argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I, I mentioned earlier with Calvinism, you know, a lot of these these systems of thought, you know, are, are getting their ideas from the same scriptures we're reading, um, mm-hmm. and and oftentimes they'll have great insights. Um, and so, as, as you mentioned, just we we shouldn't think like, oh, uh, my team, their team, sort of deal, um, because there really is a lot of great insight um, to be gained from people you disagree with. Um, and, and you know, in that example, um, uh, even before you you you. Uh, yourself brought the prodigal son um, the returned. I, I was thinking the whole time, like all of these, uh, you know, characters in these parables are are described as as being in in this state of destruction, but they're all restored in the end, um, mm-hmm. and that's arguably the point of those those parables. Um, which is, right, and you can uh, even think of the destruction as part of grace. So that part of grace that comes to us is that God ultimately. If to whatever degree is necessary, destroys whatever in us that we cannot destroy on our own for whatever reason, and so will not let us be captive by that forever. So destruction is actually God part of God's uh, regretful way of of healing us from that which we cannot burdens or sins or whatever that we cannot cast off on our own. Right. It's just like yeah you know, when Paul talks about. Um, crucifying the flesh and its sinful desires, um, which is very intense imagery if you if you think about it. Um, often we're we're used to thinking about crucifixion in, in the context of, of faith, um, but it's it's a very intense image to describe um, the the d- how am I how am I going to phrase this? It's a very intense image to describe uh, the extent to which. God is going to cleanse us from the things that are not proper to us, to the things that are corrupting us, to the things that are evil. Um, and this again goes to the um, th- this idea of, of of God being victorious over over His enemies and and Christ, you know, subjecting all His enemies under His feet. This is not a partial victory. This yeah. is a complete victory in, in which um, you know the entire reign of death and sin will be undone. And undone even more so, you know, Paul talks about um, in, in this, you know, Romans 5, you know, there, there's no place in which he suggests that the reign of, of, of grace will be a smaller subset or, or somehow uh, more limited than the reign of death. Rather, he uses the opposite language all the time. He uses much more 
Um, mm-hmm. will, will those will those uh, through Christ's reign? Um, just very interesting to meditate on. Well, I like that George MacDonald said uh, with regard to the ultimate uh, victory of God in our lives. He said that the devil must come out every hair and feather. In, in other words, we will need to repent. We will need to be purified. That none of this happens. Sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, Christian universalism." They just say, "We don't need to repent." You know, you just waltz into waltz into heaven, and God just is, looks overlooks your you know your sins, and so they think how unfair that is. But actually, if you look at Paul's writings, you look at the early church fathers, they were very intense about the level of purging and purification that may need to take place in the ages to come, and that God would not be in a hurry about all of this. So there was going to be some way in which God would would not violate our our free will, but would create a free will, would liberate our will and help us to finally be freed from everything that was holding us back. Right, right. Very well said. Well, um, some scholars uh, claim that while Romans 5, 18 to 19 reads clearly as a universalist statement, that it might just, you know, that Paul was riding a little high in the saddle there. He was just feeling, he was just a little full of himself and, you know, and just being exuberant, and maybe um, we need to just kind of understand that that maybe Paul was, um, I don't know, being a little um, optimistic, over-optimistic, and we need to uh, just sort of couch that in the more sobering statements that Paul writes in other places, so not, you know, not get carried away with these certain apparently universalistic texts in Paul. Yeah, and there are there are some very um, heavyweight scholars in, in, in the field of New Testament who have said something like this. And in my paper, I, I cite Rudolf Bultmann and, and E.P. Sanders, who are, who are two of the, the big names, um, who uh, essentially um, argue that, that, that Paul got a little carried away. Uh, he argued more than he intended. He yeah. got too excited about this parallel. Got, got a little um, over in front, got a little over the front of his skis. Yes. But... <laughs> what 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 I find wanting about this um, is that it's not just verse eighteen and nineteen um, that have this. It's not that oh Paul really wanted to make this neat parallel and so he got carried away. But the entire force of of this section um, is that um, whatever humanity lost through disobedience in Adam, God will restore. Through Christ, it's it's not something that is a little flourish on 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 some other idea, but rather it's the entire sort of idea itself. Um, and 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 this is this is imagery, this, this sort of Adam Christ parallel that um, pops up elsewhere in Paul. It's in First Corinthians fifteen as well. That that other sort of um, great universalist uh, text of Paul. Um, it's, it's something that appears native to his thought um, and not something that uh, is coming from outside. And again, this, it, it fits very, um, very neatly with this, this image of Christ as the conquering king, um, as bringing this new age, as, uh, as destroying sort of the, the pretenders um, to, to power um, and emptying them of, of all their claims. Um, so I, I'm not convinced that this was Paul 
getting ahead of himself. Mm -hmm. I I think this is Paul saying exactly what he meant to say. Um, And I think it, it, it fits well with what he says um, elsewhere and, and, and sort of his entire view uh, of seeing Christ and his victory in this matter. Well, let me uh, read the concluding statement uh, for your article. And again, I would, I would like everybody to just access this article um, and read through the whole thing themselves. It's, it's worth, it's worth reading, but you write at the end of the article, despite facing criticisms from textual nitpicks to challenges of context to questions of broader theological congruence. The universalist interpretation of Romans 5, 18 to 19, advanced by David Bentley Hart, remains unshaken. The Greek text itself is clear, both in its vocabulary and structure. The supporting verses around support a universalist reading. And within the context of Paul's theology, Romans 5, 18 to 19 is harmonious with the universalist eschatological and salvific image of Christ, the conquering king. Hart's universalist exegesis remains the clearest reading of the text, despite how many protests and even charges of heresy it may spawn. It certainly holds up to scrutiny, both textually and theologically. Hart's universalism should be taken with utmost seriousness as a legitimate Christian doctrine, one that despite swimming against the tides of predominant eschatologies, finds a sure ally in the words of the apostle. So uh, I can imagine you that you read this paper at a conference. I'm kind of imagining, you know, <laughs> that being your, your ending statement at the conference. And, uh, and you know, and your, your, your paper has been out, I think, for two or three years now. So I just want to ask you, do you still, you know, do you still stand by those words that you wrote and by this article that you wrote? Um, yes, I do. Um, perhaps even, even more so because, uh, back then this was, you know, right after I, I wrote this paper and I, I sort of had these sources fresh in my mind, but, um, it, it's something that has been confirmed, um, as I study the new Testament more that there is a sense of, of universal salvation, um, of ultimate eschatological, uh, universal salvation for Paul, um, and you're right. It was very fun at that conference to sort of conclude with that uh, call to arms, so to speak. Um, but I, I, I certainly think it's it's the the most immediate reading of, of this text, um, and I, I think that it really is um, congruent with what Paul says elsewhere. Um, and, and the language I use of, of finding a, a sure ally in the, in the words of the apostle, uh, I would stick by. Um, now, as, as we mentioned with, with Dr. Boring's article, it's, it's difficult to, um, declare, uh, from a strictly scholarly perspective, um, that, that Paul was a, a universalist through and through just because there, there are these sort of, there's, this multitude of, of imagery, mm-hmm. um, which, which yeah, makes and Dave, it, yeah, David Bentley Hart yeah. says this too, that, that Paul may not have been entirely consistent. Yeah. Um, but I, I think in these places where Paul is meditating most thoroughly on what the victory of Christ means for the ultimate destiny of mankind, these are the places where you find universalism. These now are the you places may- where you have these descriptions. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah, I just noticed that, uh, you know, you say that uh, this interpretation, despite how many protests and even charges of heresy, it may spawn. And that is something that you run into 
uh, once you start saying, oh, you know, well, I think my interpretation of the New Testament and history of the tradition leads me to believe that there will be an ultimate restoration of all humanity. Sometimes people, you know, raise their eyebrows and say, well, haven't you just committed a heresy there? And have you had to deal with that or respond to that? Uh, certainly. Um, it's it's definitely um, an idea that a lot of people have that, that this is something that we should, um, before even engaging with the text, um, sort of set aside as something that is untenable um, um, from a Christian perspective. And this is simply not historically um, how these texts were first interpreted. Um, there are even some scholars who think that, um, particularly in the, the Eastern area of the Roman Empire, where there was a lot of this theological activity, universalism was a more prevalent view um, than what we now call particularism or eternal conscious torment. Um, and so, you know, I, I often say if, if you want to, you know, declare me a heretic for, for believing these things, like, what, what are you going to say to St. Gregory of Nyssa or uh, even St. Athanasius or St. Isaac the Syrian or, or all these other great saints who, who have these views? And by no means am I comparing myself to these, these great saintly figures. Um, but I, I would just like to say that this is, this is a, a view that has gone back to the beginning. This is a view that is supported by the text of the New Testament itself. This is uh, a view that is congruent with the proclamation of the gospel uh, and our understanding of God as, as universally um, and, and totally loving. Um, and so in, in that sense, um, I, I think that the, these charges of heresy are from people coming from a, a sort of fixed perspective that they're, they're not moving beyond. Um, and, you know, we can go into the, the nitpicks of, of what happened at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which, right. you know, a lot of people bring up um, as allegedly uh, condemning yeah. universalism. It, of course, well, what, what happened was, it. yeah, just yeah. real quickly, origin, <laughs> origin, the name of origin was added to a list of, of, of heretics, but there were no officially, there was nothing at the council that was officially passed that explained what exactly origin was condemned for. There were some imperial anathemas that weren't a part of the official proceedings of the council that kind of get historically uh, attached to that council, but there's no evidence that, that the council actually voted on any of those imperial anathemas. And so I think that charge falls kind of flat. And plus, once you study the history of Origenism, which is the extrapolation of Origen's views by uh, folks as some monks in Palestine and people who took his views uh, and elaborated on them, it, it's pretty easy to see that, um, that, that, that saying that the idea of a universal restoration of humanity was clearly condemned at a church council just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Yeah. It's, it's, it's simply the, the, the interpretation that this was a council that condemned Christian universalism in all forms is on many levels, uh, a fiction. Um, but uh, again, I, I am not a, uh, patristic scholar, so I'll, yeah. I'll give a Well, the council that, and, but... and the main reason the council was called was they were trying to still trying to resolve this monophysite controversy. You know, how many natures does Christ yeah. have? And they really had trouble working that out. So that ostensibly 
they were trying to unite the empire on the on that basic question. That was the main reason for the council. And then this, uh, you know, the condemnation of Origen was kind of a add on uh, to the to the main thing. Yeah. And what it really comes down to for me is, is um, just that this isn't, this idea of Christian universalism isn't sort of an add on that you sort of tack onto your Christian belief system, but rather something that reveals Christ um, through this understanding, Christ is revealed uh, in in a way that personally in my own life, I, I never understood Christ in in the in this totally victorious manner uh, when I was a particularist. Um, it Christian universalism, in this sense, um, opens sort of the, the floodgates of the gospel to to be what it is. You know, the the good news, the proclamation of victory, and there's no little asterisk on that victory that it's only partial or, or it's only available to some people and that, you know, some people will still be, you know, under, under the reign of Christ's enemies. Um, and, and so in that sense, um, you know, this, this isn't a, a heresy in that, you know, going back to the root of heresy as a choosing, this isn't like a, a little doctrine that, that someone picks to add um, to their Christianity, but rather flows itself from the fundamental um, proclamation of the gospel itself. Well, so here we are now in 2023, and you know we've had in the last 10 years some pretty good scholarship come out on Christian universalism. You know, not just David Bentley Hart's work, but other other PhD level work, other good scholars. There's, um, you know, there's more things that are being written about Christian universalism. I, I think it's becoming a bigger discussion. But I just wanted to ask you from your perspective. Um, how do you see this? Do you think? Do you see that Christian universalism is being more seriously considered uh, in your circles? I certainly do. Um, I think that that thanks in part um, on the uh, scholarly end to, to folks like David Bentley Hart, um, who are not being cautious about their universalism, uh, but but being very sort of bold in proclaiming it. Um, but also that that facilitates people intellectually um, to sort of open themselves up to the idea. Um, but really, uh, I feel like this this movement towards uh, universalism, um, which particularly has been happening in, um, strangely enough, evangelical and Eastern Orthodox yeah. um, uh, circles, um, not not exactly the the, the two most common. Uh, <laughs> sort of in Christian worlds. Um, but I, I, I think that it, it, it's something that for a lot of people, it is allowing them to take what they always suspected or, or thought about the victory of Christ um, and, and to think about it comfortably and openly um, and to not think, oh, am I being a bad Christian by understanding the victory of Christ this way? And it, just to hear voices saying, no, you're, you're being a good Christian. This is a interpretation of, of, of the Christ event, the, the, the victory, the resurrection of the son of God that is in accordance with the scriptures. It is in accordance with, you know, the church fathers that is uh, in accordance with how we may live the gospel um, in a, 
a, a totally encompassing way in our own lives. Um, so I think there's a lot of elements going into this sort of uh, revival of Christian universalism uh, that's both intellectual, but also uh, spiritual and personal for a lot of people. So I, I don't think that this is a theological fad. Um, I think that this is a retrieval of something that is very fundamental in the Christian tradition. And I, I think that um, this is something that for years to come, we, we will see more and more. Well, Daniel, I was very impressed with your, uh, with your article that you wrote, your paper that you wrote. And um, I know you're planning on continuing your studies. And so uh, you're, you're now a uh, young scholar that is on my radar screen. So I will be, uh, I'll be keeping up with your, uh, with your work. And it's great to have somebody that's really diving deep into the, the Greek language and the, uh, that ancient culture in that world. Um, and I think you're going to be uh, discovering lots of gems to uh, bring to us. And it's just very hopeful for me to get to talk to you. And I thank you for, uh, sharing some of your time with us today. Thank you, David. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, those are very kind words. Um, and thank you very much for, for having me on uh, the podcast um, and having this great conversation. All right. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Hopefully, yes. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced. <laughs>